I'd like to refresh your memories uh, by going back uh, to talk briefly about uh, the two classes last week on Faulkner. And we looked at Faulkner's remark um, at the Nogona seminar in Japan when he claimed that the sound of the fury is the same story told four times. So in light of that claim, we looked at the relation between Benji and Quentin as a relation of kinship and variation. The two of them are obviously brothers, but they can also be seen as brothers in more than just a biological sense. So let's think about um, kinship and variation as the most fundamental structure of the sound, the theory. Um, and so far, what we can see is that this structure of kinship and variation is pivoted on some kind of battle with time. As we know, Benji wants Caddy never to grow up. He wants her always to be an innocent young girl, never to become a woman. He wants her always to smell like trees. That's the signature line from Benji. Um, in many ways, it is a battle for an impossible, unchanging innocence. Um, and we know that the nature of the battle is such that Benji is destined to be a loser. There's no way he can win that battle. But we also know that the very fact that this is an impossible battle, that Benji is destined to be a loser, also means that it's going to be a narrative challenge for Faulkner. He has to do something for the loser. If you are a good author, you want to do something for the loser. And so one of the challenges for Faulkner in The Sound of Fury is to do something for Benji. If we turn to Quentin, we see pretty much the same pattern repeated, the same battle with time. Quentin is exactly like Benji in that he also wants Caddy never to grow up. He wants her always to be an innocent young girl, never to become a grown woman with, with her own sexuality. Um, and so in that way, it's an almost complete replay of that impossible demand from Benji. But Quentin has an additional battle with time, a more abstract battle. And we see that in the opening of the Quentin section. He takes out his watch. He's smashes the crystal, um, and then he takes out, he twists off the hands of the watch. But we also know, and he injures his hand in the process. Um, so right then, we know that you know, it's a losing battle for him too. Uh, but he twists off the hands of the watch, and the watch takes on. Um, that's a little local allegory for the entire uh, course of Quentin's section. So at the end of Quentin's section, uh, we know that the most offending word and that he calls the saddest word of all is the word temporary. Um, and by temporary, he has one particular context in mind. Uh, his tragedy, as we have seen, is basically a second-hand tragedy. It is not his own tragedy. It is the second-hand tragedy of Caddy losing her virginity. But Quentin is embracing it as his own tragedy um, and is basically finishing 
uh, wrapping up his life as a response to that tragedy. But the fear is that that tragedy is going to pass. That is not going to be a permanent tragedy for him. Everything is temporary. Even the sense of devastation will go away. So because temporary is the saddest word of all, the only way uh, Quentin can get around that word is to have a preemptive strike against that word. His suicide is a preemptive strike against the word temporary, so that it will have an artificial permanence in his own life because his life is ended at that moment and there's no possibility for it to fade away to become less devastating. Um, so um, in those ways, Benji and Quentin are very much brothers in a spiritual sense, um, a kind of metaphoric battle with time. Today we'll move on to Jason, um, and it's a bigger challenge, you know, to think of Jason as the brother to Quentin and Benji. Jason seems very, very different on the face of it. But I'd like to uh, suggest that in at least one way, Jason can be seen as a brother to Benji and Quentin, um, in that he also has his own battle with time. And it is a battle with a larger uh, constellation of forces. So we are seeing scale enlargement um, in a very significant way in the Jason section. Uh, we're seeing a much bigger picture of the United States. And that scale enlargement um, has to do with a tug of war between the yesterday of the United States and tomorrow of the United States. And Jason wanting very much to cling to the yesterday it is more congenial to him in every way. But at the same time, he knows that the tomorrow is already here. In fact, the tomorrow is encroaching on the present. There's nothing he can do about it. He just has to learn to cope with that tomorrow. Very uncongenial, very threatening tomorrow. He has to learn to come to terms with that. So the basic <coughs> dynamic of Jason's section is the battle between yesterday and tomorrow. And I think that we know that it pretty much is a losing battle for Jason as well. Um, because we're talking so much about yesterday and tomorrow, I want to bring back that very important passage from Macbeth, Act 5, Scene 5, that Faulkner took the phrase, the sound of fury from, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted through <coughs> the way to dusty death. It is a tale of Tobin. It is the sound of fury signifying nothing. So Faulkner is really getting the maximum mileage uh, from that passage. Uh, he's really taking up the entire scaffolding uh, of his novel from that Shakespeare passage. Um, and I'd like to give you a brief overview of the basic structure of today's lecture, um, the, the various terms that come into play um, in this tug of war between yesterday and tomorrow. We know that the horse um, is, uh, is actually still a present 
um, in the sound of fury, Queenie, uh, the horse will have a starring role at the very end of the novel. We don't see her quite in the foreground yet, but I promise you she'll have a starring role. Um, we know that the automobile um, is very much here. Um, and I like to think of those, the horse and the automobile, um, as uh, two directional arrows. So the horse is a vector, is a direction, directional arrow pointing back to the 19th century. Um, the, a very genteel world where to own a horse uh, makes you part of the gentry, um, as well as civility uh, of um, social distinctions. Uh, the automobile, as we already have seen in The Great Gatsby, um, is a vehicle that to some extent breaks down or complicates social distinctions. Uh, it also brings in strangers. So um, the phrase that I would like to use to think about that kind of transition uh, from the past to the present um, is the concept that I'm taking from the literary and cultural critic Raymond Williams, the notion of the knowable community, um, and how that's receding into the past, that's breaking down to be replaced by an unknowable world of strangers. And on that basis, I'll talk, talk about uh, the basic structure, really, in the Jason section, is two patterns of grievances, two patterns of injury, as we know, Jason is someone who feels grief all the time. He feels that the whole world has done him an unpardonable wrong. Um, so he's complaining all the time. That's his mode. Uh, but given that this is the baseline for Jason, he has two different um, parties, um, two different kinds of people uh, that he's complaining about. Uh, one is the known parties, people in his immediate environment, people he knows very well. Um, and then there are total strangers who are also doing him wrong that he knows nothing about, but he's convinced uh, out to get him. Um, so the notion that they are strangers somewhere to get you versus people right here who are do, doing you in right on the spot. Um, and so um, the people who are right there are his family, his servants, his father, his niece, Quentin, um, and the unknown parties include the usual suspects, New York Jew, US government, Western Union Telegraph, and of course, Wall Street. Um, so very familiar, getting very close to us, actually. Um, but um, this is the image um, that I find, uh, in some sense, a kind of a capsule summary of the dynamics in the Jason section. You see the horse and cart, the 19th century relic, um, and then the automobile uh, right, coming right, uh, almost going to run it over with fear. Um, and that's the situation that we get in uh, the sound of fury in the Jason section. Um, we know that Jason um, actually is part of the future, he's part of tomorrow, um, in the sense that he owns a car and he's very proud, he's seen in his car a lot, and he's very proud that his is a, a relatively expensive car, it's not a Ford, he makes a point that you know, there are people who own Fords, but his car is not a Ford. We don't know what kind of a car he has, but uh, it's a car that he's proud of, uh, and he spends a lot of time in. But there's a basic incompatibility between Jason um, and his car, and this comes back to the constant curse. Uh, it turns out that Jason's faculty of smell is as highly developed as his two brothers. In his case, the smell that gets to him isn't the smell of trees or the smell of 
honeysuckle, but the smell of gasoline. You can stand the smell of gasoline. Gives him a tremendous headache. The only time he, the only way he can drive is by putting a handkerchief soaked in camphor over his nose. That's the only way he can drive his own car. So um, this is um, his um, complaint about this vehicle uh, that belongs to him that he uh, wouldn't dream of getting rid of, but is a burden to him. And now I reckon I'll get him just in time to take a nice long drive after a basket of tomatoes or something and then have to go back to town smelling like a camphor factory so my head won't explode right on my shoulders. I says, you don't know what a headache is. I says, you think I'll fool that damn car at all if it depended on me. Of course, he's complaining that it's not by choice that he's in this car, but we also know that you know, he's proud of his car. So this is just to lay out basic difficulty in Jason's situation is that there's a tension, uh, a conflict between his own physical well-being and the most basic ingredient of an automobile of structural incompatibility between Jason as a biological human being and the mechanical workings of the car. Uh, but beyond that, there's also something else that makes the automobile a terrible threat to Jason, which is the kinds of people who come with automobiles. Um, and uh, is already we're beginning to see a world of strangers opening up right there um, in Jefferson, Mississippi. So here's Jason. I had just turned onto the street when I saw a Ford coming howling toward me. All of a sudden, it stopped. I could hear the wheels sliding, and it slewed around and backed and whirled. And just as I was thinking what the hell they were up to, I saw the red tie. And I recognized her face looking back through the window. I saw red. And I recognized that red tie after all I had told her, I forgot about everything. I never thought about my head even until I came to the first Fox and had to stop. Yet we spend money and spend money on roads and dam if it isn't like trying to drive over a sheet of corrugated iron roofing. I'd like to know how a man could be expected to keep up with even a wheelbarrow. Um, in the space of two paragraphs, we see that Jason has shifted his attention from his niece Quentin um, to the government who's not keeping up the roads, right? So, right, the first thing that we can say about this passage is that the word temporary isn't just a curse for Quentin, it is also a curse for Jason. He has a very short attention span. He can't really keep his mind fixed on the thing that he's going to complain against. Um, and that's just a little aside, you know, it's not something that Jason himself um, notices, but we can say that for him, um, is that he really, there's one strike against him um, in his battle with time, that he's such a short attention span that he can't hold on to what little time that he has, or that he can't make that time last longer, can make his grievance last longer. So not being able to make something last longer is one of the problems with Jason. Um, but the most, in, and that's a long-term, you know, kind of generic constitutional problem for Jason. 
But the most immediate problems for him is that his niece, Quentin, the daughter of Caddy, is running around with total strangers. Um, and we don't know who this man is. Uh, Jason is not telling us because he doesn't know. Um, all he can see is that this is a man with a red tie. Um, and that tells him that this man is no good. Um, and that Quentin should be hanging out with this man wearing a red tie. And he comes with a car that's a relatively, I don't myself consider for the cheap car, but Jason considers it a cheap car, and therefore there's another strike against the stranger that he's no good. Um, in the next, so this is on page 238. Next page, uh, we know who this stranger is. Not really what kind of a person he is, but what kind of occupation he has. I says, as far as I'm concerned, let her go to hell as fast as she pleases, and the sooner the better. I says, what else do you expect except every damn drummer <coughs> and chief show that comes to town? Because even those town jelly beans give her the go-by now. So that shows how far the Compton fortune has fallen from being the town gentry, um, Quentin has fallen so low that even the town jelly beans may touch her. Um, the only way she can have some company is to hang out with strangers coming to town for the first time, um, cheap shows. It's confusing to see the drummer in the context of the cheap show. You know, we might think that the drummer is someone who plays the drums, but actually, <laughs> no. This is a specialized 19th century, late 19th century, turn of the century, early 20th century uh, slang word for the traveling salesman. Um, so Jason is using that very distinct period uh, usage. Uh, the drummer, this is a traveling salesman. We know that he's going to be there, you know, probably just for a day. Uh, to keep Quentin company, and then he'll be gone. Um, so um, Jason, in that way, is uh, an entry point for us uh, to that 19th century world, uh, the changing world of salesmanship, of marketing. That's very important um, that we have traveling salesmen who drive around in cars, um, fast-living traveling salesmen. Uh, all of those are sort of new developments. Um, and um, the other thing we can say uh, about this drummer um, is that he's known to Jason to the extent that he is known at all, um, primarily because of two attributes. One is, is the most thing that stands out from him is the fact that he's wearing a red tie. That's a giveaway for Jason. And the other thing is that his occupation is written on his face. The fact that he's a traveling salesman is um, clear just from anyone can see that that's what he is. So Jason's knowledge of the drama doesn't extend further than that. It is a very superficial knowledge um, of this man. Not because Jason doesn't want to know him. Well, maybe Jason doesn't. Uh, in any case, that knowledge will never extend further than the color of his tie and the occupational label that Jason can pin on him. Um, it is a world that is, by definition, 
made up of our superficial knowledge of total strangers, people we see once and never again. That is the world that is opening up in front of Jason. Um, we can decide whether or not this is a world um, that we like or not. Um, we have no choice. I think that this is also the world that we are in. Quite often, most of the people that we meet actually are people we see once and never again. Um, that we know just by those two attributes, what kind of clothes they wear, uh, and what our surmises as to what kind of occupations they have. So um, Jason's tomorrow is in many ways our present. And here, I want to, um, um, in, to mention the work of one of my heroes, really, uh, Raymond Williams, uh, a very um, influential uh, literary and cultural critic. Um, you know, he died some time ago. Um, and um, his classic work, The Country and the City. Um, in that work, uh, Raymond Williams coins the phrase uh, knowable communities. In fact, one of the chapters of the book um, is called Knowable Communities. And this is what Raymond Williams says. A country community, most typically a village, is an epitome of direct relationships, a face-to-face -face context within which we can find and value the substance of personal relationships. As the scale and complexity of the characteristic social organizations increase, a whole community wholly knowable becomes harder and harder to sustain. So Raymond Williams's idea is that modernity is defined by the breakdown of that unsustainable, utopian, ideal, knowable communities. Um, and uh, he really reads uh, almost all of, he, he was English, um, so he reads almost all of English literature using that concept. Uh, and I'm extending his insight um, to American literature. And here I want to stop very briefly and say a word about plagiarism. I know that uh, the first paper is coming up for you guys. Um, and I just want to emphasize how important it is to acknowledge uh, where you're getting your ideas from, where you're getting your wording from. Knowable community is a phrase that I could have made up myself, um, but it is really important to acknowledge the book that you, or the article that you got the, the, the concept from. Very, very important for two reasons. Um, one is that it is just a courtesy, uh, needed recognition to the person who came up with the idea. Um, if you were to come up with a great phrase, you want people to acknowledge you. Um, but I think that more than that, um, I think that citational practices are not just a technicality, not just a way to get ourselves out of trouble. It is a way to show that we're in dialogue with someone else. Um, and because Raymond Williams is such a hero for me, um, I actually take a lot of pleasure um, in thinking that, you know, even though he, he didn't write about Faulkner, um, that actually his insights apply so well to Faulkner. So it is the pleasure of having uh, a long um, and extended uh, conversation uh, with someone, you know, with people that you admire, whose work you enjoy reading. Um, so for both those two reasons, um, is please acknowledge where you're getting your um, ideas from. 
So um, using Raymond Williams's idea of the knowable community, um, I want to um, think about um, Jason's uh, structure of injury, his pattern of injury. Um, and I'll be looking at two passages um, that suggest that he's still in a knowable community. And then we'll move on to that uh, much more pressing uh, the world is going to win out the world that is made up of unknowable strangers. But first, um, knowable community based on Jefferson, Massachusetts. This is um, Jason at breakfast. Once a bitch, always a bitch, what I say. I says you're lucky if a plane out of school is all that worries you. I says she ought to be down here, down there in that kitchen right now instead of up there in her room, gobbing paint on her face and waiting for six niggers. They can't even stand up out of a chair unless they got a pan full of bread and meat to balance them to fix breakfast for her. So the basic problem, one of the basic problems for Jason that we noticed earlier, the very short attention span is very much in evidence here. He starts off complaining against his niece, Quentin, by the end of that passage, is complaining about the niggers in his household. Um, so he can't hold on to a grievance for very long. The word temporary is definitely a curse for him. Um, but even though the word temporary is a curse for Jason, he actually aspires to permanence. And we see that in the opening line of that passage, once a bitch, always a bitch. It, it's not a proverb. There's no such proverb uh, you know, in the world. But it has the feel of a proverb. It has the feel of a proverb-like permanence. And this is the small town Jason who is speaking, um, finding enormous satisfaction from making pronouncements that sound like proverbs. Um, this is his take on the world. <coughs> And he's able to sum up the entire world uh, just using um, seven words. Um, you know, can really do better than that, a seven-word summation of the entire world. So just enormous satisfaction. So we can say that even though Jason is complaining nonstop, even though that's his mode, um, this is one instance where complaining um, is actually a very pleasurable activity for Jason. Um, he's getting a kick being able to say that his niece is a bitch and she'll always be one. Um, and he's getting a kick out of talking about the thickness of her makeup um, and everything that is objectionable uh, about her gives him enormous pleasure. So complaining in a, no, in a world of known quantities uh, and Quentin is very much a known quantity to Jason. Complaining about people right around you, people in your immediate family, that's a really fun thing to do. And Jason is having fun doing that. He's having fun complaining about the black servants. Um, and in his mind, as far as he's concerned, Quentin, his niece, and those black servants are exactly alike. They're all good for nothing. They're all a child for him. They're all wronging him in some fashion. They're a drain on his financial resources, a drain on his patience. 
um, is just a burden that he has to carry through life, that he happens to have needs like that and to have servants like that. He can go on and on. Um, he can go on all day like this. Um, and it would be a very happy life for him to be able to go on like that. So this is the pleasure that one gets from a knowable community. Um, and I'll just give you another instance of that, um, very much in the same vein. Like I say, if he had to sell something to send Quentin to Harvard, we're all being a damn sight better off if he sold that sideboard and bought himself a one-armed straight jacket with part of the money. I reckon the reason all the Compson gave out before it got to me, like Mother says, is that he drank it up. At least I never heard of him offering to sell anything to send me to Harvard. Um, so two complaints here both center on his father, Mr. Compson. One is that his father drinks and that the, um, in fact, the, it is true that the sound, one of the many punctuate, punctuation marks, um, metaphoric punctuation marks in the sound of fury, and Mr. Compson making the trips to the sideboard to get the booze, um, that's one of the punctuation marks in the sound of fury. So Jason isn't wrong that his father drinks and probably is squandering away the whole Compson's fortune, to the extent that it, there is one now, um, he's squandering away the whole fortune by drinking. So um, Jason sort of has a kind of legitimate complaint. Um, but a deeper complaint um, that goes along with the fact that his father drinks is that Quentin, his brother, was his father's favorite. Um, that his father, um, as much as he loves drinking, he probably loved, loved Quentin better than he loved alcohol. Um, and he would go so far as to sell the pastures, Benji's pastures, so that Quentin would go to Harvard. Of course, he killed himself after one year, so all the money was wasted. Um, and that is just even more grounds for complaint for Jason. Uh, one of again, I have to say, it's a very understandable grievance, um, the sense of not being loved, uh, the sense that nobody has ever done anything for him, that everything that could be done in that family was being done for Quentin, and then who wasted everything. Um, it's, it's, it's an almost, I wouldn't say it's a completely legitimate grievance, but it's a very understandable grievance uh, of why he's someone that nobody thinks about, nobody ever gives a thought to the well-being of Jason. Um, and what kind of a monster do you get you know, when nobody ever gives a thought to his well-being? Um, so he's, in many ways, Faulkner, and I'm just preparing you for the ending of The Sound of Fury, where do you think that even though Jason is a loser, um, once again, Faulkner does something for that loser. Uh, he's a very sad loser. And here we um, see some of the reason for that sadness is that people turn into monsters when they feel that they're completely unloved. Um, and, uh, but still, right now, along with the self-pity, along with the constant complaining, Jason is getting some satisfaction from the fact that he's complaining against his father, once again, known quantity to him, uh, all, known all too well in this, in this instance. So 
Let's look at um, the breakdown of that knowable world um, because it's satisfying to Jason. That's the thing that's going to be taken away from him. Um, the, so the last thing that gives him, gives him satisfaction is going to be taken away from him. And the breakdown of the knowable community um, comes with automobile, um, as we have seen, um, and all those things that are sort of um, intimated by the arrival of the automobile, the New York Jew, the US government, Western Union, Wall Street. Um, so let's look at one instance of Jason's sense that he's wronged by unknown parties. And um, all of a sudden, we see that the world has expanded tremendously, that even though Jason is still in Jefferson, Mississippi, that all of a sudden New York City becomes his horizon, becomes his reference point. I don't see how a city no bigger than New York can hold enough people to take the money away from us country suckers. Well, I'm done with them. They sent me in for the last time. Any fool except a fellow that hasn't got any more sense than to take a Jew's word for anything could tell the market was going up all the time. The whole damn delta about to be flooded again and the cotton washed right out of the ground like it was last year. Let it wash a man's crop out of the ground year after year and them up there in Washington spending $50,000 a year keeping an army in Nicaragua or someplace. Incredible scale enlargement in the world, Jason, not only in New York City, but Central America as well. So we have to figure out why it is that the world is suddenly opening up in this drastic fashion. Um, and it turns out that actually closer to home, um, there's actually um, um, Jewish population, significant Jewish population, Jewish community in Clarksville, Mississippi. So Jason could have seen these people, he could have socialized uh, with his Jewish neighbors, but he's not thinking about his Jewish neighbors. Um, he also, because he's talking about New York City, he also could have been talking about uh, Lower East Side and Hester Street, and this is um, a picture of Hester Street, uh, turn of the century. Um, these are not very threatening people. Um, Jason could have been talking about those Jews, uh, those New York Jews. He's not thinking about those. Instead, um, the New York Jew that he has in mind um, is very similar. Uh, it's kind of a transnational Jew. Uh, this is a picture by the French painter Degas. We, I think that we know him uh, uh, probably from all his uh, paintings of the uh, ballet dancers. So you know, we think of him um, as a painter of very graceful bodies in motion. But um, he actually also has a whole um, range of paintings about social portraits. Um, and this is a um, painting of a Jewish, French Jewish banker at the French Bulls um, Stock Exchange in Paris. Um, and the, the kind of the machinations um, engaged in by the, the proverbial, uh, I guess, transnational Jew, uh, always scheming and conspiring um, for no good. Um, Jason's image of the New York Jew has everything in common with this anti-Semitic image in Degas' painting. And 
Um, so we can see that you know it's really the whole uh, financial world is really opening up in the Jason section. But there's one other detail um, that we get in, in this way. Jason is also a guide for us uh, to the world uh, of the 1920s, uh, basically the whole of the early 20th century, uh, because he's mentioned uh, to Nicaragua. And it turns out that that's actually an accurate mention. The United States was in Nicaragua from 1909 to 1933. Uh, the, in 1916, getting closer to the date of the um, Sound of Fury, the Sound of Fury, let me just say, was published in 1929. Okay, So keep that date in your mind, 1929. But in any case, in 1916, uh, there was the shamaro Bryan Treaty. Uh, it was ratified by the US Senate in 1916. And it gave the United States exclusive rights to build an inter-oceanic canal across Nicaragua. Um, the Panama Canal was already in existence, but there was some thought that maybe another canal might be useful. Um, and the United States was claiming exclusive rights to build that canal. Um, and that treaty also turned Nicaragua into a near US protectorate. So that's Jason's complaint about the $50,000 that we gave. Uh, spent to keep an army in Nicaragua. So uh, Jason was some, is someone who reads the newspapers, clearly. He's a good newspaper reader. He's up on the news. Um, he has almost legitimate complaints against the U.S. government and the foreign intervention of the U.S. government and the drain um, on the finances of the United States. Um, and um, so the, all of a sudden, there's a conflation of the New York Jews, <coughs> the US government, strangers uh, at a distance up to no good, right? So you know, people who are far away, you never set sight on them. Um, they are harming you in some fashion. Let's look at um, another way in which, uh, and here in, in the earlier um, passage, when the US government is just spending $50,000 a day in Nicaragua, um, Jason himself claims to be completely innocent. He's just harmed by the policy, the foreign policy of the United States government. But in the next passage, uh, we see that actually uh, Jason is, in some sense, um, a willing party uh, to um, the harm that is coming to him, in the sense that he is complicitors uh, in the world that he's uh, complaining about, um, and this is also uh, the second instance of injury from um, unknown parties. Damn if I believe anybody knows anything about the damn thing, except the ones that sit back in those New York offices and watch the country's suckers come up and beg them to take the money. Only be damned if it doesn't look like a company as big and rich as Western Union to get a market report out on time, half as quick as they'll get a wire to you saying your account closed out. But what the hell do they care about the people? They're hand in glove with the New York crowd. Anybody could see that. Why is Jason so obsessed with the Western Union and with the telegraph as a newly developed instrumentality of communication? Well, it turns out that he's a small investor, and he wants to find out exactly how his stocks are doing. Uh, he wants to be able to invest or withdraw his money. Uh, so the Western Union is crucial. His relation to Wall Street is crucial. 
but the Western Union is crucial in getting those reports to him on time and allowing him to change his investments on time. And it turns out that the Western Union uh, was in fact a very um, common the site uh, in the South. Uh, there were many telegraph offices in the South. And this is the main office, the Western Union office in New York City. Um, so once again, Jason really knows what he's talking about. He's naming um, entities that actually were his real historical entities. Um, and, um, and here's a bank. Um, this is a historic bank on the historic Oxford Square um, in the Oxford, Mississippi, that is Jefferson, Mississippi. Um, and uh, we, it's right that this is the main square in town. So banks were also a very important presence um, in Oxford, Mississippi. And um, it's really Jason's um, relationship to the banks, both the local banks and also the national banks on Wall Street, by way of the mediated by the Western Union. Um, that really is the main relation in his life. Um, yes, he has a relation to his niece, Quentin. He has a relation to his mother. He has a relation to his black servants. He hates them all. Um, and the most significant relation that he has is to his money held uh, in jeopardy now uh, by the national banks in, on Wall Street. Um, so, um, and it is in that context that all of a sudden the proper life phase phrase reappears, uh, but in a very sad, uh, almost a plea from Jason. Like I say, once a bitch, always a bitch. And just let me have 24 hours without any damn New York Jew to advise me what he's going to do. I don't want to make a killing. Save that to suck in the smart gamblers with. I just want an even chance to get my money back. And that, that is the very small hope on the part of Jason. He's not asking to make a huge sum of money. He just doesn't want to lose all his money. Um, and it's such a modest hope that we know is bound to be defeated. Uh, because, of course, in such a world of long-distance action um, and were operated uh, by total strangers with huge, large-scale, impersonal institutions, small investors are the ones who lose out. Um, so, you know, it's a ph phenomenon that we recognize very well. Um, in that way, I think that we shouldn't forget that just as Faulkner has a lot of sympathy for Benji, Faulkner also has a lot of sympathy for Jason. It's very hard for us as readers to have any sympathy for Jason at all. He's just such an offensive, off-putting kind of character. Um, but I think that that very resonant um, small plea, I just want an even chance to get my money back, um, in, to, in, in that one phrase, Jason in many ways speaks for all of us. Uh, and Faulkner knows it, um, that it is, that is in, in many ways the most important phrase in the Jason section. Um, and as it turns out, the irony of history is such uh, that the history of the United States turns out to be a colder 
to The Sound and the Fury, because the same year that The Sound and the Fury came out was also the year of the crash. And here is an image uh, of the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Um, and two more images, the crowds outside the New York Stock Exchange. Um, all those people are probably much bigger investors than Jason. They're right there on the spot. They're probably big investors or stock, they're, you know, they're, they're the traders, actually. A lot of them were traders. So they were insiders uh, on Wall Street. But even the insiders had the illusory sense that if you could just be there physically, that that would make a difference. So this proves that Raymond Willings' idea of the knowable community is actually a psychological demand from all of us. All of us want to know the people we're having transactions with. All of us are creating knowable communities right around us even though the actual historical circumstances are making those knowable communities an impossible ideal in the present. So we know that those people are there on the spot trying to recreate in vain an utopian ideal from the past. And even though they're not country suckers like Jason, um, in the sense that they are not from Mississippi, um, they resemble him in more ways than one. So in, in that sense, the Jason section um, represents the largest uh, possible scale for uh, Faulkner. Uh, it really is about the entire world capture uh, by Jason's dealings uh, and his failed attempt to come to terms with the future. The tomorrow that he's guiding us to is really no place to be, but I think that for him and for lots of other people, that is the present. Um, but uh, for Jason, um, it's the problem of trying to find a resting place, a sustainable or some kind of bearable place um, in that tomorrow. That's going to be the challenge for Faulkner um, in the last section of The Sound of Fury. So we'll come back um, to uh, an alternative to the automobile at the very end of The Sound of Fury and Jason's uh, Satisfaction with that.